after that brief interlude. Good. 7th of January was the last reading, so where are we now? The 29th, so about three weeks ago. Uh, quite a few of us went off to Thailand and came back again. Um, and uh, <coughs> So I'll continue the readings from uh, roughly where I left off. So there had been the uh, chapters uh, or sections on meditation and particularly uh, going through Lumpur Cha's teachings on the hindrances, the Nivarana. And this next section is called Ways and Means. So I believe I haven't read this out before, but uh, I think this is where we got to. So this is the third section of the chapter on meditation and it's called Ways and Means and this uh, first part is called Skillful Means. The hindrances do not appear in the mind as a result of meditation. Rather, it is that meditation reveals hindrances that are already latent within the mind which are difficult to isolate and deal with effectively in daily life. Meditation might be compared to putting the mind under a microscope in order to see the harmful viruses, invisible to the naked eye, that are threatening its health. Lumpur reminded his disciples that encountering the hindrances in meditation should not be a source of discouragement. In dealing with hindrances, meditators are getting to know how the mind worked and how to deal with it most effectively. He said that meditators should be constantly observing and reviewing what worked in their meditation and what did not. They should treat their mind as parents did a child, expressing a measured appreciation and encouragement when it did well, being consistently firm and fair when it needed admonishment. The untrained mind was like a willful child that followed its moods and often got into mischief. The meditator was not to smother the mind with overly close attention, but to keep a constant eye on it wherever it might go and prevent it from falling into danger. Learning from mistakes and being creative in finding ways to deal with problems that arose in meditation were good things. At the same time, care should be taken not to develop so many skillful means that the essential simplicity of the practice was forgotten and more harm done than good. So this uh, um, passage here, maybe I mentioned it uh, earlier on, it's reminiscent of a particular image that the, the Buddha gave in terms of uh, how uh, to pay attention, how to, uh, say, overlook the activity of the mind. And being in a uh, sort of uh, agrarian culture, a farming culture, the Buddha used the image of looking after a cow, uh, looking after cows uh, <coughs> grazing, and um, feeding themselves in the fields. And the image is one of, uh, if it's the, uh, the, the wet season, there's, there's lots of uh, foliage around, there's lots for the, the cows to eat. And so that um, if it's uh, uh, that kind of season, then the, um, the uh, person who's looking after the cows can sleep comfortably, they can kind of doze under, under the shade of a tree and uh, let the cows sort of uh, wander fairly freely because 
there's lots of them to eat so it's unlikely that they're going to wander into the crops and destroy the the harvest uh, so he compared that to when the mind is uh, say directed towards a wholesome state if it's inclined towards loving kindness towards peacefulness towards uh, the uh, general uh, qualities of the, the kusala the wholesome then that uh, there can be a, a, um, a more distant uh, attention but when the mind is uh, inclined towards what's unwholesome towards uh, lustfulness or aversion or fear or um, irritation of various kinds then he said it's rather like when it's the dry season and there's not much to eat and then the cows are very very likely to wander into the crops and start eating all the rice plants so that in that uh, situation then the, uh, the the person looking after the cows can't afford to fall asleep under the tree or, or can't doze off because they have to keep an eye on the the, the cattle uh, very closely because they're going to get themselves into trouble and destroy the crops and so um, that sense of, of overlooking and caring like a, a um, uh, say uh, a cow herd or a shepherd uh, looking after uh, a, a herd of cows or a flock of sheep this is a, the um, say the an image that's frequently used in terms of uh, say encouraging skillful mind training so the next section is called physical pain sometimes you may break out in a this is uh, Lumpur Cha speaking sometimes you may break out in a sweat big beads as large as corn kernels rolling down your chest but when you've passed through painful feeling once then you will know all about it keep working at it don't push yourself too much but keep steadily practicing physical discomfort arising during sitting meditation can range from a dull ache to cramps to agonizing pain as the discomfort is dependent upon the meditator's choice of posture he or she has the power to bring it to an end by moving the question arises as to whether the meditator in pain should change posture and if so at which point Lumpur's usual advice was that meditators should not move out of a reactivity bred from fear or anxiety at first they should attempt to turn attention from the pain by repeatedly returning to the meditation object if that became impossible meditators should take the physical sensation of the pain itself as their meditation object in the case that mindfulness was still not strong enough to deal with the pain then the meditator should change posture Lumpur cautioned his disciples given to the given to pushing the limits of their endurance to ensure that their enthusiasm was always governed by wisdom too much willful endurance of physical pain in meditation by a beginner could gradually lead to a sense of dreariness an aversion to practice or in extreme cases a visit to the doctors that is a unfortunately common occurrence <laughs> yeah, overzealous uh, uh, resolutions or overzealous yoga uh, practices as well so I've seen all the pictures of people in the perfect lotus postures and it's uh, very easy for the to be wrenching the, the body into positions or enduring pain beyond uh, the, uh, the limits of what wisdom says is is a 
workable for a particular body. On some occasions, Lumpur urged, urged disciples to persevere right through the dark tunnel of painful feeling and emerge on the other side. Meditators who can endure pain to the point at which it reaches a crescendo and then dissolves, experience a great rapture and enter a state of deep calm. Having gone beyond painful feeling in this way, meditators' fear of pain, thus of death, is usually much diminished. Even more importantly, the natural separation of the physical feeling of pain and the awareness of it provides a profound understanding of the impersonality of feeling. The realization of how much of what was assumed to be physical pain is in fact the instinctive emotional reaction to the pain and that it can be released through mindfulness. That can be the grounds for a significant breakthrough in practice. This um, small paragraph, a couple of paragraphs, it contains a, a lot and uh, extremely pertinent advice. So this, again, this is echoing one of the, the Buddha's essential teachings about uh, meditation and dealing with pain in particular is called the Arrow, the Salla Sutta. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's Sutta number six in the uh, the um, Vedana Sangita. The, uh, sorry, the the, um, the yeah the Kanda Sangita, the um, uh, section thirty-six of the uh, Sangita Nikaya. The, the um, Collection of teachings arranged by subject. So the uh, it's a uh, and the the Sala Sutta is the image takes the image of a soldier shot on the battlefield with an arrow. So the the first arrow the Buddha says um, no soldier no person can avoid being hit by the first arrow, and that first arrow is physical pain. So essentially, if you've got a body, you've got a mind. If there is a, a living system, necessarily it's going to experience pain. That's part of the of the deal. That's inescapable. To a greater or lesser extent, if there's a body, there's a mind. Painful feeling is part of the package, so nobody can dodge the first arrow. The second arrow, as Ajahn Jayasaro describes it here, is uh, the instinctive emotional reaction to the pain. So uh, the the body generates the painful feeling through the nervous system and um, through its representation in the mind. But then it's the uh, fearing the pain, resenting it, waiting for it to be over, uh, the aversion to it, the negotiating with it, the doubting about should I move, should I not move, uh, how, you know, is there real damage being caused, uh, how much pain is, is the right amount of pain to endure, is this enduring or is this just sort of bloody-minded obstinacy, what's going on here? Uh, so all of that is the second arrow. So the second arrow is completely avoidable. So this is an extremely significant principle, it's a, uh, and essentially the 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 dukkha that's talked about in the Four Noble Truths, the dukkha, the dukkha that can be brought to a complete end through the realization of Dhamma, is the second arrow. It's the dukkha of the second arrow. It's not arrow number one. So I like to point out that uh, the Buddha himself had chronic pain. He describes in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. In the long discourse at the beginning of that, he says, "He says um, this. Uh, uh, I'm now 80 years old, and this body is like an old cart held together with strings and, and straps. 
like a, an old wagon that's just sort of falling apart and is only just held together by by rough uh, repairs and bits of wire and string and and uh, nails and such like. And he said, uh, only if I absorb my mind into the sunyata vihara or the abiding and emptiness uh, can I experience comfort. So right there, this is very significant. So the Buddha experienced chronic pain unless he dis uh, and that comment about the um, uh, absorbing the mind into the sunyata vihara that means. Uh, as, as far as I understand it, uh, unless he dissociated his attention completely from the field of sense experience and was just only focusing on on the um, uh, the, say, uh, the, the quality of awareness which is disconnected from the sense world, that uh, if he was paying attention to the senses at all, he was in pain. So he he was a totally enlightened being and incapable of suffering, but he had chronic pain, <laughs> so uh, that uh, uh, that I think is a very important principle. If you're in this business to never feel pain, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> it's not this. This is not what uh, is possible in terms of the, the Buddha's understanding and uh, the, what the teachings present. But what it does uh, say put forth as a possibility is to have a a, a, a a life that's completely free of suffering. So even if there's physical pain, discomfort, and uh, indeed emotional pain, uh, which by um, say extension it applies, the Sala Sutta doesn't talk about emotional pain, it only talks about physical pain, but by uh, extension and by experience we can see that it works in exactly the same way, so that when the mind is not uh, contending against the feeling of pain, it's not waiting for it to be over, it's not resenting it, it's not fearing it, it's simply knowing it as a feeling, and it's not, there's no identification, there's no sense of I or me or mine around it, then there is pain there, but it's not a problem, it's not something that is causing dukkha, uh, it's not something that is being resented or feared, or there's no attitude of um, this shouldn't be here, or this isn't this isn't fair, or uh, why me? None of that is is present. So that uh, this is extremely helpful principle to to sort of lodge firmly right <laughs> in the heart is that uh, the, uh, th there can be experiences of pain, but the mind has absolutely no problem with it. It's not a dissociation. It's fully aware of the feeling, but it's not creating any suffering around it. The um, it's, it's also interesting, uh, I mean there are many dimensions to this, but uh, it's also particularly interesting that if there's a very, very, uh, if you're feeling a lot of pain, but the mind is very awake and very alert, there can be this realization that in, in essence pain isn't really painful, that the, the mind creates this perception, like I can say this carpet isn't really blue, and the the, eye, the light hits my eye, and the mind says blue because I speak English, and that that particular uh, wavelength of of um, vibration of electromagnetic energy hits the eye, and then the mind says blue. But that is uh, a representation, is a pattern of consciousness. So the physical feeling of pain is no more solid or absolute or real than is the blueness of the carpet or the the, the texture of paper. The mind says, this is a feeling, it's coming through the, the, the 
the fingers touching the paper, it's a physical sensation. But that's the, the mind creates a representation of the world. So this, I, I, I don't uh, feel the paper, I feel my mind's representation of the paper. I don't really see the carpet, I see my mind's representation of that visual experience. So in exactly the same way, even though you're sitting there and, ow, this really hurts. <laughs> it really feels like it's, you know, it's pain and it's solid and it's, and it's, it's there, definitely there. Uh, when there's an acute uh, mindfulness, just as the, there can be a, a, a moment of recognition, oh, that blueness is just a, a pattern of consciousness that the mind creates, or this sensation of, of touch of the paper under of these fingers, it's, that's what the mind creates. Uh, <coughs> or a, a thought, uh, a feeling of the, the weight of the body being pulled to the earth, uh, that these are, on, in ordinary everyday senses, they are there, uh, like pain, color, uh, texture, and so forth. But when there's a, a clear mindfulness, then there can be that recognition of, oh, this is a pattern of consciousness, this is seeing consciousness, this is feeling consciousness, this is thinking consciousness. Uh, and when we do the, in the chanting, particularly when we chant the, uh, the Abhidhamma chanting for funerals, uh, then we, we list these um, uh, these patterns, these qualities of consciousness. So um, the, the uh, rupa uh, rupa vijnana, uh, the, the consciousness of the body, or the um, the, uh, the the uh, the feeling, I'll say, the, the the awareness of of rupa of form, the the perception of form, the perception of feeling the perception, sorry, the perception of sound, the perception of, of smell, of taste, uh, of touch. Uh, in that uh, Abhidhamma chanting, uh, talking about the, um, the, the senses and the, uh, and the ayasanas, the spheres of experience, it goes through them uh, in piece by piece. There's the, 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 the light, the, uh, the experience of, of, uh, of uh, seeing, there's the eye, there's the visual form, there's the um, the way that that's created in the mind, so that the more that the the there's an awareness of this is a, a conditioned uh, created experience. Ow, it hurts. Yes, but if we if you don't react to that and the mind is brought to that, there's uh, a recognition that oh, this is just the mind's representation of a particular experience, and it's called pain. It's unpleasant. Similarly, with with something that is pleasant, that is delightful, that uh, that oh, the mind is calling this good, is calling this beautiful, is calling this this uh, 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 say radiant or peaceful or delightful, um, and that that when there's a great uh, say clarity, uh, uh, say an acuity of of a vision, mental vision in a in a vision, then that can be that recognition. Oh well, it's 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 pain, but it's just this. Oh, it's it's pleasure, but it's just this. Or oh, it's touch, but it's just this. It's sound, but it's just this. And that there's a a mysterious way that the, the that is held differently, is held with a, a profound quality of non-attachment, non-identification, non non-entanglement. Non the um, 
the usual encouragement also that, uh, as is pointed out here, is that Lumpur Chah would recommend uh, when you are when you're experiencing physical pain to make a habit of always staying with it for a few minutes. If you immediately change your posture as soon as you feel uncomfortable, then you ne never develop any kind of resilience, or you're, you're always just uh, trying to end suffering by getting away from suffering. But it's helpful to, at least for a few minutes, you know, two or three minutes, three or four minutes, to give, your, uh, give the, the mind opportunity to work with a feeling of pain and to, uh, to try to explore it. Uh, and yeah, uh, to recognize the, the limits of the body, but also to recognize that the, uh, when, when pain is first uh, reaching the level of, of uh, profound discomfort, and when it's actually indicating damage is being done, there's quite a distance from the, the uh, serious ouch level to the uh, something really is being, uh, really being broken or stretched or strained here. So that... Uh, he would recommend when the pain is is, uh, is very uncomfortable and you really want to move to be patient and to use that as an opportunity to explore that that feeling without being reactive. So uh, what I recommend for myself, and uh, probably many of you have heard me give this advice over the uh, over the years, is that it's also uh, and this, you're not just developing patience as a sort of gritting of teeth of like kind of counting the, the seconds and waiting for it to be over. But it's also an opportunity to develop patience. And patience, which is the paramita, is, is not just gritting your teeth and um, tolerating with a, uh, an attitude of resentment, like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm supposed to wait because that's what the Ajahn says, but uh, there's a, the mind is creating negativity, it's creating resistance, it's creating a stress-filled attitude. But uh, in that, in enduring or working with painful feeling, what's most helpful is to be not just working on endurance uh, as a gritting the teeth, uh, but rather to develop the, pati the patience, which is the real parameter, which is the patience which lets go of time. So there's not, where the mind is not creating a future. If you're just waiting for it to be over, waiting is not patience. Waiting is suffering. I know English is not the first language of everybody here, by any means. <laughs> but if you're waiting, it means your mind is creating a, a future over there, somewhere uh, that's not here now, but over there, when I won't have to deal with this. There's a me, uh, there's an owner, there's a this that is not wanted, and there's an imagined future where the, where the me won't have to have this, and that will be good, right? That's what waiting for something, waiting for the meal to be offered <laughs> when you're hungry, you know, waiting for the, the bell to ring when you're uncomfortable. That waiting is a state of suffering. There's, cre the, there's a creation of self, of time, and the, the, uh, the mind trying to dwell in an imagined future where this unpleasant feeling isn't. So the, the most profound kind of patience is a patience where there is no time. It's a, the, in a way the mind awakening to the akalika or the timeless quality of Dhamma, that there is no future. There's just this. So it's a patience which lets go of, a, of time. There's no creation of a, of a past or a future, a memory of when you didn't have this or a future when you won't have it again. 
but rather it's a surrender to the present. So this is the most profound kind of patience. So it's a patience which is a, which is not waiting. Though it might seem like a subtle difference, but if you explore that, uh, then you, you'll see that there's there's a a, a, a very uh, distinct uh, contrast between me waiting for something and the mind awake to the present even if the present is filled with some kind of painful quality. So what I, I like to encourage um, in working with pain is to uh, say, uh, be patient and to, to explore the feeling of pain and then to wait until uh, and to also to bring attention to the body and then to change posture when you need to but to change posture out of compassion and kindness for the body rather than being motivated by aversion or fear of pain. So the motivation for moving is not aversion or fear, but the motivation is kindness, recognizing, okay, something really is being stretched here and it feels like it's reached its limit, so out of kindness for the body, now's the time to move. So the intention behind an act affects very strongly the results of that that act so if the intention is is based on fear and aversion it'll have an agitated and stressful uh, result even if there's a momentary relief from pain as soon as discomfort starts to arise oh no it's back again ah i thought i got away from this and you're creating the causes of more uh, more stress and aversion if the motivation is kindness for the body and uh an attunement to the body's limits then the the result because it's a much more wholesome and uh, uh, skillful attitude then the results of, of changing the posture are, are very very different so to continue the next section is called the right approach In its most elevated form, panya, that's wisdom, manifests as the penetrative insight into things as they are, quote unquote, which eliminates the defilements generating suffering and constitutes the culmination of the Buddha's path to liberation. But the same training which achieves its consummation through wisdom also begins with wisdom. At this initial stage, it is referred to as mundane right view. Its most important feature is a conviction in the law of karma and the human capacity for liberation through practice of the Eightfold Path. Lumpur devoted a great deal of time to correcting the misguided views and false assumptions that could lead meditators astray. Time and again, he sought to clarify the principles of right view, which he called, quote, the cool place where all heat and agitation cease." Unquote. One persistent wrong view involved the belief that the causal process leading to liberation could be bypassed by means of a certain technique or skillful means. Lumpur's insistence on kanti, or patience, as the fundamental virtue in practice of the Buddha's path meant he gave short shrift, that means not much time, he gave short shrift to people impatient for results. 
When a lay meditator asked him for a shortcut, he replied, if that's what you want, you might as well just forget about the whole thing. On another occasion, he said, if the causes are insufficient, the results will fail to appear. It's natural. For liberation to take place, you must be patient. Patience is the leading principle in practice. Speaking to a group of lay meditators, he said, Meditating in order to realize lucid calm is not the same as pressing a switch and expecting everything to be immediately flooded with light. Putting forth effort in meditation is like writing out a sentence. You can't omit a single one of its words or phrases. All dhammas arise from causes. Results will only cease when their causes do. You must keep steadily doing it, steadily practicing. You're not going to attain or see anything in one or two days. You must try to put forth a constant effort. You can't comprehend this through someone else's words. You have to discover it for yourself. It's not how much you meditate. You can do just a little, but do it every day. And practice walking meditation every day as well. Irrespective of whether you do a lot or a little, do it every day. Be sparing with your speech and watch your mind the whole time. Keep refuting the perception of permanence in whatever arises in your mind. Whether pleasurable or painful, nothing lasts. It's all deceptive. How could it fail to be difficult to train the mind, he would say, when people had neglected to do so all their life up to that time, and probably for many lifetimes previously? The army of Dhamma was still vastly outnumbered by the army of defilements. It would take time to make the contest more equal. Rather than continually looking forward to a desired goal, like a child in a car asking again and again how much longer before they arrived, meditators were encouraged to proceed steadily along their chosen path of practice with the attention to the quality of the effort that they were making moment by moment. Meditators should trust that when causes were ripe, results would inevitably appear. And again, Lumpur is speaking here. The Buddha taught us to move forward, not too slowly and not too fast, but to make the mind just right, quote-unquote. There's no need to get worked up about it all. If you are, then you should reflect that practice is like planting a tree. You dig a hole and place the tree in it. After that, it's your job to fill in the earth, to put fertilizer on it, to water the tree and to protect it from pests. That's your duty. It's what orchard owners have to do. But whether the tree grows fast or slow is its own business. It's nothing to do with you. If you don't know the limits of your own responsibilities, you'll end up trying to do the work of the tree as well, and you'll suffer. All you have to do is see to the fertilizer, the watering, and keeping the insects away. The speed of growth of the tree is the tree's business. If you know what is your responsibility and what is not, then your meditation will be smooth and relaxed, not stressed and fretful. When your sitting is calm, then watch the calmness. When it's not calm, then watch that. If there's calm, there's calm. If there's not, there's not. You mustn't let yourself suffer 
if your mind's not calm. It's a mistake to rejoice when your mind is calm or to mope when it is not. To mope means to be miserable or unhappy, like... Mm. Would you let yourself suffer about a tree? About the sunshine or the rain? Things are what they are, and if you understand that, your meditation will go well. So keep travelling along the path, keep practising, keep attending to your duties and meditating at the appropriate times. As for what you'll get from it, what you attain, what calmness you achieve, that will depend on the potency of the virtue you have accumulated. Just as the orchard owner, who knows the extent of his responsibilities towards the tree, keeps in good humour, so, when the practitioner understands his duties in his practice, then just rightness, quote-unquote, establishes itself naturally. While Lumpur saw how important it was for his disciples to acquire a firm foundation of knowledge of the Buddha's teachings, he also warned against the detrimental effect of too much or unwise study. Again, Lumpur is speaking. There are learned teachers who write about first absorption, jhana, second absorption, third absorption, fourth absorption, and so on. But if the mind gets to the level of lucid calm, it's not aware of all of that. All it knows is that what it's experiencing is not the same as in the books. If a student of the texts grasps on tightly to his knowledge when he enters states of lucid calm and likes to keep noting, what's this? Is this the first absorption yet? His mind will simply make a complete retreat from the calm and he'll get nothing from it. Why? Because he wants something. The moment there's craving to realize something, the mind pulls back from the lucid calm. That's why you've got to throw away all your thoughts and doubts and take only your body, speech and mind into the practice. Look inwardly at states of mind, but don't drag your scriptures in there with you. It's not the place for them. If you insist on it, then everything will go down the drain, because nothing in the books is the same as it is in experience. It's precisely because of this attachment to book knowledge the people who study a lot, who know a lot, tend to be unsuccessful in meditation. So, <clears throat> going back to the um, Lumpur's comments about asking for a shortcut, I was at a um, uh, set of teachings by the, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles many years ago, and. Um, one of the he would occasionally during the the course of the teachings he'd take questions from the uh, from the audience and and that they would be written down and, and given to him and uh, one of the questions was you know, what's the fastest way to enlightenment and um, the uh, and it was very very touching because he started to to give a, like a technical answer about um, sort of different methods of meditation different approaches. And then he, so in mid-sentence, he just stopped. And then he was just sort of looked down, and, and he started crying. Uh, and he, uh, and it's like his whole sort of uh, technical presentation just, just stopped right there. And then he just sort of started shaking his head and said, "This is totally wrong. This, this, this question, really, this question shouldn't be answered because the whole attitude, the mind that wants to know what's the quickest way." Is going in completely the wrong direction, so it's a very similar response to uh, to Lumpur Cha 
And if that's what you want, you might as well forget the whole thing. <laughs> he said that to to want the, the, the quickest way or to, to not have to bother making effort or to feel you've uh, and that uh, you don't want to to uh, uh, so you, you know you're so busy you got such a, you got uh, um, such a, a sense of um, impatience that uh, so the, if that's the attitude it's it's uh, it's it's going to be something that's completely destructive and uh, obstructive uh, for the mind and uh, he said you shouldn't be thinking about about uh, uh, yeah, not wanting to take, to take any time, but rather you should be, uh, if you want to, to really uh, practice the Buddha's way, then you should be ready to take as much time as it needs, lifetime after lifetime, 10,000 lifetimes, 100,000 lifetimes, a million lifetimes, as long as it takes. The, the, the skillful attitude is that you don't care how long it takes. You're not, you're not in, 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 a, uh, uh, in a rush, but rather you're ready to, to sacrifice all convenience and take as much time as, as is needed in order to, to fulfill the path. So for a Los Angeles audience, that was a bit shocking. <laughs> it's the sort of, uh, that's the, uh, America is the, the country which produced the, um, the advert for, uh, I think it was American Express credit cards, and the slogan was, take the waiting out of wanting. It's, ca it's catchy. But again, it's <laughs> take the waiting out of wanting. You know, just see, want, get, just <laughs> and uh, minimize the minimize the delay. And so, with that sort of mentality, being being brought to Dhamma practice, I thought it was very skillful. It was very powerful because it was clear that you know, the, the, here's this teacher. There's six thousand people in the auditorium, and and the teacher's sitting there crying like this is just terrible. This is so awful. This is so wrong. But. Uh, um, so it really had an impact. <laughs> so any uh, particular questions or reflections on what I've read so far? That's the end of that that, uh, that section. Yes, Venerable Kitankaro. In the reading you mentioned uh, rejecting the perception of permanence. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that perception is a bit uh, subconscious or not apparent, do you have any sort of suggestions around how to do that and how to deal with it and sort of uh, notice it when it's not sort of apparent to you? Uh, yeah, good point. The, 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 the words he uses, keep refuting the perception of permanence in whatever arises in your mind, whether pleasurable or painful. Nothing lasts, it's all deceptive. So this is where that simple practice that um, uh, again, I've mentioned a few times or quoted that Lumpur uh, Chah was a real master of coming up with, with very effective and direct ways of working with the mind. So uh, one way of developing it's called the Anicca Sanya, or the perception of impermanence or uncertainty, is to uh, set an intention at the beginning of the day, morning meditation, to say, well, whenever the mind makes a judgment, or, uh, or says this is good, that's bad, this is mine, this is yours, um, to uh, bring up the question, is that so? Is that so? Is that a sure thing? Uh, you know, I'm going to the morning chanting, is that so? You might trip over and break your arm. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, uh, the 
setting that intention. It's a quite, it's one of these things. It's a very very simple kind of practice. And uh, if you hear it, you think, oh, that's a good idea, and you maybe carry it out over the next fifteen seconds or the next minute. Do it a couple of times. Oh well, yeah, right, right. Yeah, this judgment or I like this or I don't like that or this is good, that's bad. Then um, oh yeah, that's really interesting. And then it's just like smoke in the wind. It's carried away. But if you if you set an intention and then say, okay, during today, whenever the mind makes a judgment or has a uh, makes a fixed perception you know, about anything, internal or external, this is a bad mind state. This is a good mind state. This is a problem. This is a good thing. This is mine. This is yours. Uh, this is delicious. This is perfect. This is awful. To say, okay, whenever the mind makes any kind of judgment, uh, to note, okay, the mind is judging, and then to to bring up that question: Is that so? And say, is this, this is a great thing. Is that so? This is awful. Is that so? This is mine. Is that so? This is the. This is uh, Monday. Is that so? <laughs> and then. What what happens when that question is brought uh, in a very deliberate way? Then, at least I, I find if I if I carry out this kind of practice and way of reflecting, then immediately there's a oh right there's a there's a, a way that that question when it's made in a mindful way engages with the natural quality of wisdom. There's something in the heart recognizes. Oh yeah, well it's Monday here, but in New Zealand it's already Tuesday. So is it Monday or is it Tuesday? And who invented the seven-day week in the first place? <laughs> and so, and also, it's not in France. It's not Monday. It's it's uh, lundi. Yeah, in uh, in Thailand it's Wanjan. So what day is it? Actually, in Thailand it's already Wanangkan. Uh, it's Tuesday. <laughs> so the uh, that recognition, that that sense of oh, and seeing that that was just a a, a, um, a limited perception, or, or just you called it good because it's seen from this perspective, or it fits with your expectation, but in itself, it's not good or bad. Or, so then, that uh, uh, the effect of that, just uh, making that as a project, says so uh, okay, throughout the. From the beginning to the end of today, this is what I'm going to do, and then of course you forget, you get distracted, and and so on. But then if you if you keep returning to that and, and taking it seriously, and you really keep it alive as a, a way of processing your the, your habitual judgments, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, it's extraordinary. It has a really powerful effect. You realize, oh right, everything. <laughs> you know, you, you begin to say, oh, well, it. Uh, this is blue. Is that so? What is what is blueness? <laughs> oh, oh, and so it, there's an intuitive um, shift. There's a, a way that the mind sees things in a in a broader and less conditioned way, and uh, and that if that is sustained for long periods of time, it really does change the way that the mind holds its experience of of, of the world. Um, the uh, another even simpler way of of uh, so getting that perspective on judgments is to just say so. Your your English isn't your first language. I'm sure in Swedish it's got its own equivalent. <laughs> in in Thai you'd say lur. <laughs> is that a fact? Yeah. So yeah. 
Jingle. Yeah, is that true? Is that so? And then, you know, or like in English, you say, so what? Uh, so that all of the, which is maybe a little bit more aggressive, <laughs> challenging it, so what? That's beautiful, so what? This is awful, this is a disaster, so what? And it, uh, it's a way of sort of deflating the self-view and the ego-centered perceptions. But there's also a freeing quality in that. So the point of it is that freeing quality. That, that's that you're developing the anicca sanya, not to make the mind more frightened and insecure, but rather to, uh, in a sense, develop that quality of seeing clearly that 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 which the mind was continually taking refuge in, that was trying to make dependable our thoughts, our opinions, our perceptions. That it's not dependable. It, ne- it was. It's not dependable now, and it never was. So that uh, that's kind of simplicity of practice, but it. It's the the thing I I compare it to. It's like a key, to put a key in a lock and turn it. It's not a huge muscular effort, but it's got to be the right key for that lock, and you have to put the key in the lock. So it's a particular effort. It's not a. It doesn't take a lot of strength, but it's it's a particular uh, quality. So that it, you have to see it as an important practice. And you have to put energy into it. You have to apply the mind to it. But if you do, then it has a big effect, like turning the, the right key in the lock, and you can open the door and leave the building or enter the building, or whatever. Uh, so it's it's a, it's a particular effort. It's not a massively challenging effort. But if you apply it in the right way, then it has a very liberating quality. Yes, um, you mentioned here and also I think a few meetings ago that Ajahn Chah encourages people to uh, try to sit in a comfortable position uh, if out of your way to make it comfortable for yourself um, I have heard maybe this isn't true um, that in some Thai forests and monasteries they sit like um, on a concrete floor without zapper when they're sitting um, which, if you do, is pain, very painful and excruciating. Um, well, so firstly, is that true? And secondly, it is. Like, could you just uh, maybe comment on the discrepancy between approaches? Uh, well, yes, uh, good question. The, um, you'll notice that we provide mats and cushions here because in the West, most people grow up sitting on chairs and cushions and such like padded environments in Ajahn Chah's um, uh, northeast Thai life in particular um, most homes had almost no furnishings at all you know the sort of grass mat that would be on the floor would be uh, about as much padding as you had if you have uh, like a padded mattress a mattress made of kapok um, then inevitably that's being invaded by insects or used by mice and rats as nesting places. So that if you did own anything that was padded or comfortable, you had to really protect it. So if you go into a, um, a, a Thai home or sometimes Thai monasteries, you'll find that they, le- they have these thick uh, uh, plastic covers on the cushions. Why do they have these kind of nasty plastic covers on all the cushions? 
it's so that the mice and the and the and the bugs can't get in so easily. So that um, what you would register as comfortable or ordinary growing up in in Thailand would be like a hard wooden floor would be normal, and also you're growing up sitting on the floor, sitting uh, uh, cross-legged or in a polite posture, and you're holding your body upright far more. Most Westerners are growing up sitting on chairs, and so your, your legs are sort of out front rather than out to the side. So by the time you start meditating, when you're sort of 15 or 20 or 25, in the West, you've, your body has already got used to, this is the comfortable position. And then you start sitting on the floor at 20-something, 15 or 20, 25, so that it's, the body's going, hey, what, 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 what's going on here? This, this is not right. This is not comfortable. So if you grow up sitting on the floor and sitting on a grass mat, and that's, that equals comfort from childhood, it would be a, it's a whole different story. So that uh, I think that you have to consider those sort of not just cultural but physical effects of what you grow up with, and uh, the so that uh, for Westerners that's a disadvantage because. Yeah, the body has to be really re-schooled to, to sit in those kind of um, postures. Otherwise, and, uh, but if with patience and effort, it, it can be done. But uh, it's also the fact that in a in an average, say, northeast Thai household, the the other end of the scale where the Westerners are at an advantage is that we enjoy solitude generally. That uh, for a Thai person going into the monastery or going to stay in, in a in a kuti in the forest. Being alone in a room in the forest, surrounded by trees, and with no other, no one, else, no one else sharing your space, is really challenging. So when I, I first went to to Wat Pananachat, I couldn't couldn't understand any Thai, of course. But the, I would ask the monks, well, "What are the villagers asking?" They're saying, and they would say, "Kittengban, mate." Kittengban. What is this Kittengban? They say they're asking if you're homesick. And you go, "Homesick." <laughs> I've never been homesick since I was eight. <laughs> Why would I be homesick? This is like alone at last. This is great. But to them, it's traumatic to live to move out of the, the the village and to move out of your your shared space to be alone. And it's not just fear of ghosts. It's just a just this kind of vulnerable uh, uh, sort of uh, lonely, solitary feeling. They're just really uncomfortable, difficult. As, as uncomfortable as physical pain, sitting on the floor. So oftentimes, I'm not trying to put Thai people down, but uh, it's, it's just, again, a cultural conditioning where you say, you, you uh, I remember uh, at, at Hana many years ago, we had a, a Thai group coming out from London to come and stay for the weekend, and we got the guest cottage, and we sort of, fitted out these sort of four or five rooms in the guest cottage and put mattresses out and put all oh, that two people to a room well that's okay you know it's it's a bit crowded but you know it's a bit small but that's all right we've got five rooms to play with all nine people went into one room <laughs> no one wanted to be uh, alone or just with one other person they all literally there was, you know, there was uh, three or four empty rooms and every, all the, all nine of them piled in like to, into one room together it's like <sighs> comfortable so um, that uh, tra you know, training of the body uh, in meditation is 
one of the things most of us as Westerners have to to deal with and the um, uh, the comfort level in most monasteries in Thailand is a little bit more uh, um, say uh, uh, can you say elevated <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's much more uh, say uh, padded now in terms of cushions and, and mats and such like that are, are available from, for many people but the general standard is on a is having just a sitting cloth on a on a, a wooden floor or a concrete floor and uh, um, but if you've been around in the sangha for ten or more years, somebody will, will push out, will pull out a uh, uh, a kind of slight, a small padded mat like that and put it put it out for you. So this would be like for visiting elder, you'd get one of those. <laughs> so uh, it's a um, it's a little bit more comfortable uh, now than it uh, than in back in the olden days, but uh, still that that standard is uh, is sustained. It's also you're not looking to make things more uncomfortable for yourself, but what dealing with uh, physical pain and physical discomfort it does it develops a uh, it supports that quality of patience and a sense of adaptability, so that you the the less stuff you need to feel okay, the better. And that the whole training that we have in renunciation, it's about robustness really that you can whether it's hot or it's cold. Uh, whether you're hungry or not hungry, um, it's uh, you're, you're okay. You you don't have to create a problem in your mind about those kinds of discomfort. So whether you've uh, so that the more we are dependent on particular conditions in order to feel all right, like with hunger, you know, people come and say, well, "I really want to come and stay at Amravati." You say, well, we you know we don't have supper in the evening. Well, that's okay. I'll just have a big you know I'll just you know a big tea. Well, no, there's no tea either. It's just a cup of tea. You know, it's nothing to eat at tea time. Well, no buns, no no bis biscuit. The biscuits all right? No, no biscuits, no buns, no no supper. Well, what do you? When, when's your last meal? Well, in the morning at you know eleven o'clock. Eleven o'clock? What about between eleven o'clock and and breakfast? Well, for a cup of tea or coffee or fruit juice. And the the mind goes. Can easily go, go berserk. How can you survive for eighteen hours with no food? It's impossible. It's impossible. And then, uh, and uh, over the years, many many times, people have have had that kind of experience or the idea coming on a retreat, not not reading the small print on a retreat and realizing eight precepts means no supper. And then they're they're kind of panicking about uh, how they're going to survive without any food for eighteen hours. And then they get about four or five days into the retreat, and they realize, oh, it's seven in the evening, and I forgot about you know, I, I forgot to miss supper. <laughs> and then by the end of the retreat, they're thinking, why didn't anyone tell me about this before? This is great. You just don't have to bother eating. No washing up. You know, your mind is nice and clear. This is great. You know, and so that uh, that endurance of uh, or working with the discomfort then opens up the. Uh, Greater capacity for adaptability that we don't realize that we have. So the more that you can uh, be, uh, say, uh, at ease with different conditions, and then the, the more you find that quality of uh, peacefulness and a lack of fear, that sense of I can't, I can't survive if I haven't got 
this kind of clothing or this kind of food or this kind of living space or you know that you, you are not dependent on external conditions in order to feel uh, at ease with, with things okay well maybe I'll just do one more section this is called no ideas of gain Meditators were constantly reminded that they had embarked on a practice of renunciation and letting go. Seeking visions or psychic powers through meditation was to miss the point altogether. If a craving to gain or, to, or attain something took root in meditators' minds, then they had entered upon a path without ultimate resolution. The desire to realize some special experience might lead on to new elevated realms of existence, but not to liberation. Seeking rebirth in refined states of consciousness was like a bird flying deliberately into a gilded cage. At the beginning of practice, the best motto was to be cool, steady and patient. Cool, steady, patient. Unwise gaining ideas at this stage could lead, could lead to meditators giving up altogether. Rinpoche Char speaks. Sometimes in meditation practice, people make determinations that are too extreme. They light incense, bow and make a vow. As long as this incense does not burn down, then I will not move from my sitting posture under any circumstances. Whether I fall unconscious or die, whatever happens, I'll die right here. As soon as they've made the solemn declaration, they start to meditate and then, within moments, the Maras attack them from all sides. They open their eyes and glance at the incense sticks. Oh no, there's still loads left. They grit their teeth and start again. Their minds are hot and bothered and in a turmoil. They're at their wits end. They've had enough. And they look at the incense sticks again. Surely they must be at an end. Oh no, not even halfway. This happens three or four times and then they give up. They sit and blame themselves for being hopeless. Oh, why am I such an idiot? It's so humiliating and so on. They sit there suffering about being insincere and bad, all kinds of things, until their minds are in an utter, in an utter mess. And then the hindrances arise. If this kind of effort doesn't lead to ill will towards others, it leads to ill will towards yourself. Why? Because of craving. In fact, you don't have to take resolutions that far. You don't have to make the resolution to tie yourself up like that. Just make the resolution to let go. Progress in meditation is, for the most part, incremental stages. The gradually increasing dampness of a walker's coat in fog, as one Japanese master has put it, rather than the obvious drenching by rain. But there can also be periods of great intensity. At such times, desire for clear validation of their efforts leads many meditators to give an exaggerated importance to unusual meditative experiences that occur. The intense feelings of rapture that often accompany such experiences seem to confirm their significance. Lumpur's insistence that all experiences are ultimately of the same value, being equally liable to cause suffering to one who delights in them, was hard to grasp for meditators anxious to believe that all the work that they had done was finally bearing fruit. 
if they did experience a noticeable shift in their practice, it could easily lead to new forms of conceit. And Paul says, don't stick your nose up in the air on account of your practice. Don't make too much out of your experiences. Let things peacefully follow their course. Don't get ambitious. There's no need to crave, to get or to become anything at all. On one occasion a monk came to ask Lung Po why it was why it was that, despite putting great effort into his meditation, he had still never seen the lights and colours that others claimed to see. Lung Po replied, See light? What do you want to see light for? What good do you think it would do you? If you want to see light, go and look at that fluorescent lamp. That's what it looks like. After the laughter had died down, he continued, The majority of meditators are like that. They want to see light and colours. They want to see deities, heaven and hell realms, all those kind of things. Don't get caught up with that stuff. Uh, again, this is a very constant uh, theme, particularly um, uh, slightly more amongst um, Thai people than Westerners, but not, <laughs> not acutely so. The sort of meditating with the idea of seeing into different realms or having visions or uh, or just reaching particular levels of attainment. So Lumpur was very determined to sort of steer against that. So this kind of poo-pooing of lights and visions and such like. And I think a, a lot of it was, was uh, as with many of the hindrances, it was guided by his own experience that he himself had had, had various kinds of nimittas, visions, and, and had powerful experiences. And he'd seen for himself how his own mind would say, oh wow, look at that, that was amazing, or oh, this is really something special. And then seeing how he would get lost in creating a whole story around that, or, or uh, getting agitated or identified with a particular experience and then he was pretty sharp and, and, yeah, and quick quick-witted so he'd realize hey wait a minute that was a pretty amazing thing that, that was that appeared but look I'm like a kind of an excited kid or I'm proud I'm sort of like the kid who's got the come top of the class I'm all kind of excited and conceited and what use is this this is really going in the totally wrong direction so he'd seen that in himself and so he would consciously deflate uh, that in people and many of his very reputable disciples nowadays still tend to drift towards making much of those kind of visionary experiences or limiters and such like and uh, he didn't dismiss it altogether uh, but uh, he was very very wary and essentially encouraged a, a cool simple and straightforward attitude and uh, so that uh, uh, the uh, it's like people are uh, people being afraid of ghosts. They say, well, one, one thing uh, uh, if people say oh, they're very afraid of ghosts or, or um, feeling of you know, worried about being uh, haunted or attacked, uh, and they often say, you know, living human beings are much more dangerous than ghosts. <laughs> it's much more dangerous to drive on the M25 than to. And uh, to deal with the, the uh, life on the on the roads, and it is uh, dealing with uh, with any kind of immaterial being you might encounter. Or similarly, just like like Lumpur says here, if you want to see a light, so people are eager to see lights or images or or, or particular 
see visions in their meditation. He said, "Well, just open your eyes. There's plenty of light. You know, it's just there's all sorts of visual forms. Is that intrinsically liberating or special or wonderful?" And uh, and I feel that's really really good advice. Uh, just to sort of keep seeing that it's not what we experience, but what the mind does with it, that is the the key focus of the practice and. I remember years ago I was uh, leading a meditation retreat in in California, and uh, about three or four days into the retreat, someone who I've known very well for years in the meditation group, but she she hadn't done a retreat with us before, and she was really upset and and really quite quite tense and and angry, and she said that after you know three or four days of meditation as we've been guiding i think it was the retreat ajahn sundra and i were leading in 93 she said uh, up until that point whenever she sat down to meditate there was like a constant it was like going to the movie theater there's a constant flow of images kind of colorful mobile well-formed images that was meditation was like watching this this uh, incessant flow of images and sort of stories and pictures and stuff going on and he said, "No, there's nothing. It's just, there's just nothing there. All, all the, all the images have stopped." So I said, "Oh, good." <laughs> He's just like, "No, you don't understand. It's like, it's my meditation's ruined." And I said, "Well, not really. It's just that." He said, "Well, well, how is it for you?" And I said, "Well, I never see anything except the back of my eyelids." <laughs> and she, she, you know, he can't, he can't mean it. You know. Yeah, so I, when I close my eyes, I just see the back of my eyes. I don't see any pictures or colors or shapes or anything. And she was, you could see that, I, I, again, I'm not psychic, but I could almost hear her mind say, oh, that's rubbish, nonsense, you know. <laughs> this monk's an idiot. You have to go and talk to someone else. But she was really bereft. It was like this huge loss in her life that her, her movies had been, you know, her, her video player wasn't working anymore. You know, it was... Yeah, I, I, again, I find it hard to take it seriously, but she, but you know, I, I tried to because she was really sort of, this is terrible, this is terrible, and uh, it was challenging for her to realize the degree to which she was just uh, habituated to to this sort of constant flow of colorful, strange, and interesting images. But uh, I would say that it was a good thing. I think, yeah, the practice is going well. Your images have all stopped. That was, I felt that was a good sign. But, uh, I'm not sure whether she ever got to that. So I'll leave it there for today. <laughs>